hard, isn't it? I think especially around this time of year, it gets really awkward because we're always in a rush to get somewhere. We're always in a rush to get something done, and so we don't like to wait. So I brought some pictures of what waiting often looks like for us this time of year. (laughs) Waiting at the supermarket, waiting in traffic, some of the hair on the back of your neck just stood up just looking at this photo, right? Maybe some of you still wait for mail. Waiting, I am. This one's for Brian. This was a magnet my mom had growing up on our fridge. It says, Lord, give me patience, but I want it right now. Are you sure? Because it's been an hour. This, a couple years ago, was actually said to cause the most anxiety more than anything other anything else um, in people is the waiting for the response in the iMessage. When the iMessage put those little ellipses in there, we knew someone was typing back and we just waited and waited. <clears throat> Last time around this year, uh, my wife and I were waiting. Um, we were waiting for our daughter to be born. She was born on January 2nd. Um, and Tom and Hannah were in the same position as us. Um, two very pregnant wives and two very anxious husbands. Um, And if you've ever had to wait for that before, um, you kind of know that feeling. Um, We had a lot of that type of waiting this year at Restoration. A lot of people had babies, and um, there are more to come this year. Not from us, though, just to be clear. Uh, One of the cool coincidences about this whole waiting for a baby thing uh, last year, for for me at least, was in my my graduate studies, I had done some work um, on the Holy Spirit. And one of the ways that the Holy Spirit manifests um, throughout Scripture is through these, these kind of reciprocating birth narratives. And so it was kind of a cool application for me to see how it all worked out after studying the theology of it. Now, I want to make a side note. Because I'm, I'm very keenly aware that around this time of year, it's very popular for, for pastors and, and, and preachers to kind of joke around about birth and, and tell fun birth stories, and all the while forgetting that for some people, this is actually a very painful subject. For some people, um, this waiting um, is waiting to get pregnant. For some people, this is waiting for a partner so that they can have kids. For some people, it's waiting for adoption. For some people, it's waiting in the pain of having lost a child. And I've sat with these types of people over the years um, as, they, as, as they've gone through these things and, and, and just the pain that my, one of my best friends felt when they lost a child and, and, and the pain that I've, that I've journeyed with people as they, as they try to get pregnant and can't, um, the pain of my friends who, who are single but long to be with someone, and the pain uh, of trying to adopt. I had a friend, I sat with him, they got turned down 18 times and just sitting with him as they felt rejection after rejection after rejection. I'm very keenly aware of the pain that, that this type of metaphor causes. And it's not my intent to talk glibly about um, birth um, in that way. Um, but my hope is that um, the one thing that you'll understand, if that is kind of the, your spot of waiting today, Um, is that as you wait and as you are hurt, God hurts with you. I think scripture is very clear that God hurts when we hurt. And as a church, 
um, I believe that we are here to, to wait with you, to sit with you in that. And so I hope that, that as, I, as I share this, it's not a source of pain, but a source of hope and maybe even peace um, in your time of waiting. And that's my hope for all of us today, that regardless of the pain that we, that we are going through, regardless of what we are waiting in, that we'd find hope, that we'd find peace, um, that we'd find some kind of purpose for ourselves in the waiting. Waiting, unfortunately, seems to be God's answer to so many of our prayers. And it's very common throughout Scripture. Waiting is not a foreign concept to us, and it wasn't to Israel. Um, Israel waited on the ark, They waited in captivity in Egypt. They waited in the wilderness, in captivity in Babylon, in captivity in Rome. In fact, waiting seems to be a primary tenet of having faith. We have faith and we're asked to wait. Um, You may recall that Abraham, the father of our faith, didn't always have many sons, right? In fact, he was so old, he and his wife were so old that when God said, I'm going to give you a son, they laughed at God. They thought it was comical. But back even before Abraham, before Noah, before Cain and Al, before Adam and Eve, before creation, there was waiting. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, it says, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This is our first birth narrative in Scripture. In this verse, the birth of all creation begins with the Spirit hovering over the waters. Creation then comes forth out of the water, each in order, each to its own purpose as God speaks. Now, the word hovering has some connotations in Hebrew, but the most fertile connotation that it has is one of a mother hen that is gathering around her chicks in order to protect them in order to defend them fiercely, right? Spirit both creates and then sustains life with protection. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruah. And ruah in the Hebrew uh, means spirit, but it also means wind, and it also means breath. So when we look at the creation of Adam, there's, there's a complete difference when we realize that the same word is being used for different things, right? In the, in the verses it's written now, it says, Then the Lord God formed a man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And that same word for breath can be replaced with the same word for spirit, ruah, to say the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and ruah into his nostrils the ruah of life, and the man became a living being. God breathed spirit into Adam at his own birth. And it doesn't stop there. You see, the spirit is given to Moses in order to help him lead the people of Israel. Moses then passes that spirit on to 70 elders so that they can lead. Then Moses also passes that on to Joshua as he leads Israel. Later on, um, the spirit is given to the prophet Samuel. Samuel gives it to King Saul, who loses it. And then Samuel also gives it to King David. Fast forward again, spirit is given to Elijah, and then a double portion of spirit is given to Elisha as they do their ministry. And then, nothing. Waiting. Ryan talked about a couple weeks ago this intertestamental time or the intercanonical time when, when no, nothing was really going on. And in fact, most theologians say this was the time when God remained silent and there was waiting. 
they hung on to, the people that, 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 that hung on to this belief, um, hung on to what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And that's how the people of Israel were left waiting, with a promise that one day, a really long time later, hope would once again take over, and they would see the Spirit in their life again. The entrance of of Jesus is another birth narrative, although a more obvious one, Um, and it functions in much the same way as the creation story. When Mary um, is told she's going to be pregnant, she's confused, and she says, how can this be? And the angel of the Lord tells her in Mark 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called a Son of God. So here again, we have Spirit hovering over, coming upon Um, someone um, during a time of creation and then subsequent birth. But Christ's birth narrative doesn't stop there. It actually goes all the way to when he is baptized. Because in baptism, Christ is put under the water, death, and then born again, coming alive again in new life. And what happens? Spirit in the form of the dove comes and hovers over Jesus. And you hear the voice of God saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. From there, Jesus initially gives the gift of spirit to his disciples when he appears to them um, after his resurrection. And he does so with his own breath, reminiscent of Genesis um, and the creation of Adam, his ruah, his spirit. Um, In John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21, says this, On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them, And said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And from that point, we have the Holy Spirit appearing at Pentecost, Hovering again as flaming tongues. We have the Spirit being poured out to people before and after their physical baptism, but after they have believed. And the Spirit continually is facilitating new life and making better life for people through healings, through prophecy, through all of this work throughout Scripture. And then, waiting. And that's where we find ourselves. We read all these things about how spirit works in the scripture and we sit around and sometimes we look around and go, well, well, why isn't that going on now? And in some places it is. Maybe we don't look hard enough. Maybe we're just kind of numb to, to everything that happens, but we wait. So in our waiting, how does the spirit direct us? How does the spirit lead us to live as the spirit has always led the people of Israel to live and believers to live? You see, waiting isn't some passive activity where we sit and just twiddle our thumbs and hope something happens sometime. Waiting is active. Waiting has purpose. Uh, You see, God God has made a habit of giving good gifts through spirit to all of us. And perhaps sometimes the reason why those gifts aren't shared with others is because we're too busy waiting. 
waiting for something to happen, waiting for someone else to do it. Perhaps in our waiting, we have delayed the gifts of God from being delivered to a world that desperately needs them. As Ryan spoke, he, he talked, and we've talked many times as the church, that um, heaven and hell aren't counterparts in Scripture. In fact, heaven and earth are used significantly together. And so why then are we so concerned with heaven and hell? Why are we not, if heaven and hell, or sorry, if heaven and earth are the way that, of Scripture, then maybe our focus should shift away from avoiding hell and how to how we bring heaven to earth, how we make God's glory and God's presence manifested here on this earth through the power of spirit. N.T. Wright calls it the already and not yet kingdom. This tension that we live in, as, as both Dan and Ryan shared a passage in Revelation, where we have this hope of a future, of this completion, when we all are united once again together, and yet we don't live there yet. And yet, at some, in some ways, because of the power of spirit, it's continually coming. The kingdom is coming presently and will come again to fulfillment. So what do we do in our time of waiting? Jesus, in Mark chapter 9, verse 35, I think gives us a good answer. He says, if any of you wants to be first, they must be the very last, the servant of all. Now, this is a tough concept for us to understand. How do we be a servant to all? Because the reality is, is some people have chosen their lot in life. Some people have chosen their hardships. And I, for one, don't want to go on enabling people to continue to live in their hardships with what they've chosen. I don't want to serve that person. They made their bed. Now they can lie in it. Sometimes we don't have time to be a servant. Things are busy. Life is busy. And we walk around focused on what we need to do rather than seeing the needs that are in the world. And I think that's precisely where waiting and service meet. Are we willing to wait in order to serve others? Richard Foster wrote a book called Celebration of Discipline, and it's one of my all-time favorite books. And in it, he talks about this type of submissive service where you're being willing to serve anyone at any time. And he says this, But when we choose to be a servant, we give up the right to be in charge. There's great freedom in this. If we voluntarily choose to be taken advantage of, then we cannot be manipulated. When we choose to be a servant, we surrender the right to decide who and when we will serve. We become available and vulnerable. And so if we choose to submit ourselves to servitude, we can't be taken advantage of. Nobody can walk over us if we've made the choice to be servants. If we choose the longer line in the grocery store, We don't have to get mad that we have to wait. And then we know that somebody else gets to go in the shorter line before us. If we choose a parking spot further away, we don't get mad about how we have to walk so far and somebody else gets a spot closer. If we fly Southwest Airlines (laughs) and we choose to go to the back of the plane, we don't have to get so frustrated with how long it takes us to get off the plane. This is one of my favorite ways um, to practice this. If we choose to serve people, 
They can't walk all over us because it's our choice to be in that position. And sometimes that act of service is one of waiting and just listening. St. Francis of Assisi puts it this way. Above all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, We'll just be waiting. (laughs) That was fun. St. Francis of Assisi is walking with one of his um, followers, and he's, he's showing them, they're talking about all the great things that we can do to serve God. And St. Francis says, but that's not the completeness. But that's not the completeness. And finally, his, his partner says, then what then? What is the completeness of love? How do we serve one another? And St. Francis says this, of all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit, which Christ gives to his friends, is that of conquering oneself and willingly enduring sufferings, insults, humiliations, and hardships for the love of Christ. In our waiting, we serve others and we find peace. When I was about to graduate from college, um, we went on a church history tour in Europe. Um, And it was... It was there that I, that I profoundly um, changed my mind in terms of what peace actually means in my life, um, and I believe in the life of believers. You see, we had read this article about some peaceful protests that had happened during communist Germany. And if you know your history, um, then, then you know that communist Germany was not a happy place, right? It wasn't this idealistic, utopic environment. It was full of violence. It was full of separation, of division, families divided from each other. And we had read that some church there had done something peaceful um, in protest to the government. And so we went to see uh, what this was. And as we got to this church in Leipzig, Germany, um, we found a guy, he was kind of denim, kind of grungy old clothes, and he was hanging out with a beggar, and come to find out he was the pastor of a church, of this church that we were going to visit. And he had been around at the time in the 1980s when this peaceful thing had happened, so he brought us into the church to tell us the story of what happened. And he told us that earlier, um, in the earlier 1980s, he began to be fed up with the lack of peace in his country. And so he decided to host a peaceful prayer meeting, and he invited people to come, um, to come share their ideas, share their prayers for peace. He expected about 10 to 15 people 140 young people showed up. He describes these young people as the fringe youth, the rebellious, the ones with green hair. Um, In the 80s, it was popular to show your rebellion with your colored hair. That's how he describes these youth that show up. 140 of them show up, most of them having never set foot in a church before. So he builds a cross and he lays it down and he explains to them who Jesus is. And then he says, if any of you would like to offer a prayer for peace or say something about peace, to to go ahead and light a candle and place it down on the cross, thinking, okay, a couple of them will speak. Every student there spoke and had something to say. 
That night they decided to continue on with these peaceful prayer meetings, these meetings to pray for peace. And they did this for years and years and years every Monday night. And eventually the government found out. And they weren't happy with it. It was dissension. They didn't want that. So they began ordering people to stop their peaceful protests, ordering people to stop gathering to pray for peace, but they wouldn't do it. In fact, a few days before this fateful day that I'm about to tell you about in Munich, um, there was a peaceful protest and the government came in with their police and they beat people and they dragged their faces across the asphalt and they tried whatever they could to break up this protest. And so word got back to Leipzig that, hey, you need to cancel your prayer meeting. You need to not meet on Monday. Things are getting bad. The government is not putting up with it. And this church, this pastor said, no, we will meet as we always do. We will pray for peace. Well, the government was ready starting at 2 o'clock on October 9th, 1989. Um, They brought in their police. They brought in their tanks. They brought in their blockades, their clubs, their guns. And they were ready for anything. The church was filled to capacity. Over 2,000 people there. And then the sermon was preached from the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what both the people and the police heard. Blessed are the poor, and not wealthy people are happy. Jesus said, love your enemies, and not down with your opponent. Jesus said, many who are first will be last, and not everything stays the same. Jesus said, for whoever will save his life shall lose it, and whoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it, and not take great care. Jesus said, you are the salt, and not you are the cream. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. As the people exited, the police and the, and the congregation, they were met by tens of thousands of people, all outside holding candles. The pastor began to explain to us how a candle symbolizes peace. Because when you hold a candle outside, you need two hands. One hand to hold the candle, one hand to block the wind from blowing it out. And when your hands are full, you cannot fight back. There's no way to be violent. Peace came over that town that night. The officers came in, they talked to people, they heard the message of the gospel, and then they left. One of the heads of the, of the communist government, government at the time said, we were prepared for everything, but not for candles and prayer. The peace of Christ broke through a small town on October 9th, 1989. One month later, November 9th, 1989, the Berlin Wall came down and communism was no more. We left that day dumbfounded, tears in our eyes, not being able to process what we had just heard. This man who was supposed to tell us a story was a man who had started a revolution by praying for peace that ended communist in an entire nation. We are in the presence of a great leader, a peacemaker. And that day on, I couldn't hear the word peace without thinking about that miracle on that night. 
I couldn't stop thinking about the fact that these people and their dedication to praying for peace stood against an entire government of a country. And I began to realize how much peace is a part of our life as believers. They had to wait decades for this to end. But eventually, it did end. You see, peace is not a ceasefire. It's not the absence of war. Peace is the presence of God. And that presence is us. Because it is us who have the power, the presence of God, of Holy Spirit inside of us to be shared in our leadership in the world. And that's how it's done all over scripture. The God above has given us the good gift of spirit and now we are able to give that good gift to others. And we can do this in the littlest of ways. I'm married to an elementary reading teacher. And so I often find great, I am told about great children's books that that work well with a sermon. Um, And once I get over fighting back the tears as she's describing these books to me. I usually go on and find them and try to share them with my students um, or uh, in this case, for you. I think this book uh, really gets to the heart at what we're talking about today as far as what can we do as we wait? What can spirit guide us in as we wait? This is a book that came out about a year ago or earlier this year and it's called Come With Me and it's written by Holly McGee. All over the news, all over the world, the news told and told and retold of anger and hatred, people against people. And the little girl was frightened by everything she heard and saw and felt. She asked her papa if there was something she could do to make the world a better place. Her papa said, come with me. Hand in hand, they walked out the door to the subway. Waiting there on the platform, her papa tipped his hat for those, to those he met. And so the little girl did too. They rode the train through the tunnels underground. The girl and her papa were brave and kind that day. And that day they won a tiny battle over fear for themselves and for the people of the world. The news kept telling of anger and hatred, and the little girl asked her mama what she could do to make the world a better place. And her mama said, come with me. They went to their grocery to buy some things for dinner. Because one person doesn't represent a family, a race, or the people of a land. Her mama cooked and the girl set the table, piece by piece as she had always done. Plate in the middle, knife and spoon to the right, fork on the left, napkin by its side, water in the glass. The little girl sat with her mama and papa, And they ate together. Her dog nuzzled her under the table. 
She scratched his head. I want to do something on my own, she said. Can I walk the dog? Her parents looked at each other. And then they looked at their child. They let her go. And sent a message to the world. They would not live in fear. And when the little girl opened the door, the boy across the hall opened the door too. Where are you going, he asked. The little girl said, come with me. Because two people together are stronger than one. The girl, the boy, and the dog were happy to be out. One step at a time, they understood what they could do to make the world a better place. They could go on. Brave, gentle, strong, and kind to one another and all living things. As tiny as it was, their part mattered to the world. Your part matters too. Come with me. Both Dan and Ryan talked about the conclusion of Revelation and the hope that awaits for us as we wait for Christ's return. And what we can do in the moment is to wait in the Spirit, to allow the Spirit to let us see the little things in the world that we can do, the ways that we can serve people, the way that we can step back out away from ourselves Choose the place of a servant and wait for others. Further on in Revelation, towards the very end of the book, in chapter 22, verse 17, the author says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. That is our invitation in waiting that we are given by God through the Holy Spirit. Come. Come with me. Let's pray.